Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. So today I'm delighted to be talking to two colleagues from the Global Movement of Welcoming Organisations, Aleem Ali, who is the Chief Executive Officer for Welcoming Australia, and his colleague David Lubell, the founder of Welcoming America and now also Welcoming International. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. So who is Welcoming Australia and Welcoming International and the wider movement and what do you do? Welcoming Australia is a national not-for-profit organisation and movement who is committed to cultivating a culture of welcome and advancing a nation where people of all backgrounds have equal opportunity to belong and contribute and to thrive. Contextually, I guess what that looks like for your listeners is Australia as a nation is 25 million people spread across the largest island continent on the planet. And our continent is both home to the oldest living and longest continuous culture in human history. Hundreds of First Nations and languages who coexisted on this land for millennia and long before colonialism and tall ships stumbled upon what we now know as Sydney Harbour. But we're also one of the most culturally and linguistically diverse countries in the world. Contemporary Australia is now a half of our population were either born overseas uh, as first generation migrants or have at least one parent who were born overseas as second generation migrants. Um, and more than 20% of households speak a language other than English. And so I guess this is the context in which uh, one of our key initiatives, Welcoming Cities, exists and operates, working across the country with uh, local governments, councils, municipalities to have a more planned approach to migration, settlement, cultural diversity and inclusion. Uh, and it's a, an initiative that my fellow interviewee, David LaBelle of Welcoming International, helped us to launch uh, back in early 2016. Thanks, Aleem. David, could you introduce us a bit more to Welcoming International, please? Welcoming International is a relatively young initiative. It came out of Welcoming America in the sense that I was the founder of Welcoming America, started that organization in 2009. But by around 2014, we started getting interest in the work of welcoming different cities and organizations in, in Germany. And then not too long after that, we were introduced to Aleem and, and work that what was then Welcome to Australia, now Welcoming Australia was doing in Australia. And through that process, uh, we realized, or I realized, but others as well, that there was this movement out there that was not just about the work that we were doing in the United States. This was a welcoming movement that was thriving and growing around the world, a movement of localities that wanted to really do a lot more than just what national governments were doing, but but go extra steps toward making sure everyone in their communities were welcomed, felt welcome, the institutions were welcoming. And so Welcoming International, our, our work is not to scale a specific approach, it's to recognize that there's this impressive movement of welcomers around the world that include municipal governments, that include other actors. Um, and so our job is to, at Welcoming International, which is still a program of Welcoming America, but our job is to support these initiatives happening around the world, help them to provide new structure to their work, but more importantly, just help them connect with the other movements that are happening around the world. And uh, that's what I do every day. So, Liam, what's the big idea behind Welcoming Cities? One of the big ideas is that a realisation that while diversity is our reality as a nation, inclusion is very much a choice that we need to make if we want social cohesion and economic participation to exist and to advance in our communities. Social cohesion and economic participation exists because we make a very deliberate choice 
and an intentional, I guess, choice that really requires collaboration and partnership and clear frameworks and expertise and ongoing support and ways of working. And so we identified a need, particularly working with local government. We have three tiers of government in Australia, uh, federal or national government, state government and, and local councils. And local councils are very much, I guess, service their local communities. They understand the complexity and the nuance of their communities, but they're often the least resourced and the least supported in terms of ensuring that people settle well and have opportunities for participation in in all aspects of community life. And so we identified that need and that gap and really we position local government as the facilitator and the broker in their community and support them around knowledge sharing, you know, sharing leading policy and practice, uh, celebrating success, talking about the great work that's happening on the ground every single day in communities across our country, partnership development, um, helping them partner both internally, sometimes in a large organisation or institution. The community development team doesn't necessarily know what the economic development team are doing and bringing them together to talk about the importance of integrated and, you know, across organisation work but also then partnership development out into the community uh, across the country and then internationally through Welcoming International. And then the fourth area that we work with councils is around standards and accreditation. So we have the Welcoming City Standard by which a council can pretty much benchmark everything that they do uh, through that lens of diversity and inclusion and be assessed and accredited against that standard as a Welcoming City. Thanks. So help us better understand the scale and dimensions of the challenge that you're working to address there, please. Uh, Starting with some numbers. So some numbers. What we know from research or anticipate from research is that over the next 30 years or so, migration will continue to maintain sustainable population growth. It will continue to drive economic and skills growth. It will contribute approximately $1.6 trillion to Australia's GDP. But I guess the story behind the numbers is that there's some tensions and divides in all this. The benefits of migration and cultural diversity and social cohesion and economic participation are not being enjoyed by all Australians or people who necessarily visit our shores. And so communities are really grappling with two quite disparate issues, either rapid urbanisation and growth, which impacts about 55% of local government areas across the country, and trying to advance social cohesion and economic participation amidst that growing cultural diversity and we're talking about communities that are growing at rates of 20 to 50 percent per annum in in some instances in terms of their population size or alternatively population stagnation and economic decline and the challenge of attracting and retaining migrants and newcomers and admittedly the majority of that decline is occurring in regional rural or remote communities not exclusively though and there's not a lot happening in between it, it's it's kind of our map suggests that it's one or the other it, it's either this significant growth piece or significant decline piece and how do we address quite different issues for us part of the challenge particularly for declining communities and regions is that their levels of cultural diversity are traditionally quite low when compared with the broader population and so they know that their growth will only come through migration and settlement and that this will likely be led by recently arrived migrants or refugees or people seeking asylum or new and emerging communities. Um, But they're communities that the receiving community often has limited or incorrect or stereotyped views or understanding of. And sometimes that's perpetuated at a political or a populist media level. And I guess in some respects, similarly for for the rapid growth, particularly the urban and city councils, the challenge is really planning for that growth and integration and understanding their often rapidly changing demographics. And this happens generally within quite welcoming and inclusive communities, but with a broader narrative sometimes that is, is very much about trying to bring divide because it's politically expedient or, or it sells newspapers or it gets, you know, clickbait. So there's that sort of level of complexity that's often going on as well. Thanks. So one of the inclusion dimensions that we're looking at in the case studies throughout this report is integrated systems wide approaches. What does this look like for welcoming cities? 
For welcoming cities, that's very much driven by the welcoming city standards. The standard itself is built around six key categories that cover everything that a local government has carriage of and responsibility for. So from leadership through to social and cultural inclusion, uh, economic development, infrastructure and assets. And it looks at both internal practices, including the organisation's workforce, right through to external practices and activities and engagement with and in the community. So that very much frames and, and drives that systems-wide approach in relation to our support of and work with members. And another systems dimension is all of the agencies and organisations and people involved in the initiative. You've mentioned some of your key stakeholders at city level and government level, but who are the other types of key stakeholders that you include in welcoming cities and what are the ways in which you bring them together? Really diverse, uh, I guess, like our work. Um, and we try and live by the welcome and mantra of inclusion. So we'll, we'll essentially work with anyone who'll help us to advance the dial on welcoming and inclusion. So all tiers of government peak bodies, NGOs, universities increasingly playing a key role in our work in, in terms of research and ensuring that we have a strong evidence base for the work that we're doing. Philanthropic organisations, both as, uh, I guess, supporters of our work, but also in terms of the work that they're advancing through specific focus that they might have around social cohesion or multiculturalism. But really, I guess, the primary partner and member for us through Welcoming Cities is the local council and and their involvement for them to be a member really has to be endorsed at an executive level, um, either by the mayor or the councillors or the CEO, which is really critical because organisational buy-in and ownership kind of has to happen at that level and it's really vital to the success of the work that we're doing with them. Thanks. And looking at the community level, what kind of changes in involvement does Welcoming Cities enable for either key populations that you work with or looking at the community as a whole? I guess we're really interested in and we find that the most meaningful work happens at the intersections. So when Welcoming Cities first began as an initiative, there was very little formal work and almost nothing that we could find that was documented anywhere in Australia between First Nations and new and emerging communities. Uh, and in fact, one of our members, the City of Parramatta, put that challenge to us early in their membership of the network and, and sort of sent us on a, a bit of a journey of trying to identify what existed at a local government level or at any level for that matter in relation to cultural dialogue and placemaking and exchange between First Peoples and newly arrived migrants. And we pretty much turned up nothing. So that then inspired a process of seeding a project to kind of do exactly that. Just as a brief aside, there's, there's sort of a popular narrative in our country that contemporary Australia is a multicultural success story and even extends as far as to being the single most successful multicultural nation in the world. We don't necessarily disagree with that, but we would contest aspects of that. And so our nation's colonial history and the injustices that First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to be subject to really remains largely unaddressed. And so we would, I guess, state that our multicultural success story really can't exist in a vacuum. And so addressing injustices and supporting self-determination is really a critical aspect of building inclusive communities. And so Parramatta, which was the city that approached us about this work, has been home to the Darug people for more than 60,000 years. You know, the, the area is deeply significant for Aboriginal people. But at the same time, it's this um, challenge that we have, the pace of change in Parramatta is unprecedented. Um, you know, in the next 20 years, it's anticipated that an additional 150,000 people will join and, and call Parramatta home, that this will increase the population from approximately 250,000 residents to almost 400,000 residents over the next 20 years. And currently, 50% uh, of residents are born overseas. So there's all this kind of really interesting, diverse uh, cultural diversity happening on the ground. And so this project was implemented to really try and strengthen a level of mutual understanding between First Peoples and migrant communities in the Western Sydney region. And I guess build capacity for individual action towards reconciliation and welcoming. And so it involves storytelling and various sort of cultural activities, 
um, opportunities for people to, to share their stories and their perspectives. And then the program was kind of designed to be replicated with other audiences and really sort of begin to build a base for cultural understanding in those communities. And so I think that kind of work has really informed a whole range of important case studies that people can learn from and consider and uh, contextualise and possibly then replicate in their own communities. And so we've documented a few of those um, case studies uh, in a volume called Stories of Welcome. Um, and we're in the process of writing the second uh, volume of that popular uh, publication, which has a whole range of other case studies as well. Thanks, Liam. I think that's a really nice example of the partnership, how you, there's that mutual support and challenge, but how out of that kind of dialogue, a lot of learning which others in the network can benefit from emerges. Could you share some of the other inclusive outcomes that you've been able to achieve with the programme so far, please? Some of the things that we're really pleased and proud of, I guess, if we can use that word, allowed to be proud of our success. You can um, use that word, yeah. <laughs> You're definitely allowed to be proud of it, I <laughs> The fact that we have 50 members in less than four years um, who are representative of more than 30% of the Australian population, I think that's, that's significant. There's clearly an appetite and a need for and an interest in this work and a recognition that bringing people together around these challenges is really important. But not just joining the network, I think one of the things that we identified when we were first uh, starting up this initiative was that there's a lot of messaging work that goes on that is really important. A lot of campaigns that happen in our country around anti-racism and even, you know, in terms of we have, and I think they were birthed in this country, refugee welcome zones. And it's really important at a messaging level and, and communicating, you know, to communities that this is work that that councils and institutions and organisations value. But a lot of those initiatives by their nature as campaigns don't have a lot of structure, don't have a lot of accountability built into them. There's, there's no real framework around that. It's just, it's really important work and it's good and we want to do this work, but it then doesn't resource that work. And so the fact that there's not just an interest in joining the network, but that many of our members are committing to the assessment and the accreditation process, which is not enjoyable really for anyone necessarily. It's quite onerous. Um, it demands a lot of an organisation. It demands them that they ask some really difficult and challenging questions about who they are as an organisation, what their vision is for their community, what's going on in their community that's working, that's not working, where, where the gaps are. So committing to that assessment and accreditation process really requires a significant level of commitment and accountability, but they're there and, and they're doing it. And we're just starting to see the benefit, I think, of that work. We spent two years in development around that accreditation process and consulted very widely and deeply around that work to ensure that councils felt that it was something that they had a level of ownership of. But we're starting to see some significant cultural shifts. And one of our members for example, four years ago, had violent anti-mosque, anti-Islam protests on their streets. They're about to be announced, and it's kind of top secret, so I can't really say their name, but they're about to be announced as having achieved our second highest level of accreditation. Uh, and the difference in that community is palpable. It's tangible that, you know, they have a, a cultural diversity and inclusion plan and the work that they've been doing over the last number of years is really sort of almost the envy of, of many local governments in Australia. Thanks that's a great example and uh, I think those kind of examples that other councils can see as well um, they can see what's possible. So bringing the program up to the now and looking at COVID-19 what kind of changes or adaptations are you having to make in welcoming cities with some of your key partners as a result of the pandemic and the response? Like many people and organisations, we've taken a lot of our work online, which we're a bit nervous about, to be honest, partly because prior to the global pandemic, our members have been generally reluctant and almost technology averse in terms of wanting to engage on that level. So the majority of our work was very much in person, face-to-face, -face, in community, lots of gatherings and conversations and forums and, and presentations all in person. So the shift to online was obviously necessary, but potentially fraught. Um, and to their credit, um, they surprised us quite pleasantly and almost overwhelmed us in terms of the demand. So we went from 
quarterly or biannual in-person meetings to what became weekly, at, particularly at the height of lockdown measures, member meetings online, talking about you know, specific issues that were going on in communities, um, members talking with each other, trying to identify very responsive solutions to things that were going on, you know, and, and that was everyone from, from the library who pivoted to contactless, collect your books, kind of delivery services to, um, you know, emergency relief and a whole range of different things. Those were the conversations that were going on. So that was pretty amidst a difficult and awful situation, uh, something that I guess was encouraging to us and really, I guess, highlighted the value of the network and the value of the work and both the networks but also our own capacity to be responsive and to work actively together and to bring people together to to discuss and and to co-design solutions um so that that's been pretty significant and then i mean we had to pivot some of our other work we do sports inclusion work through another initiative called welcoming sport and that all sort of went online and we ran uh, living room sports sessions uh, to engage diverse communities. Our welcoming centre, which is a community centre based in Adelaide, uh, pivoted mostly to, to home deliveries and emergency relief and has also then uh, been advocating for the up to 2 million people in Australia who are on various visa types who are left without any support and excluded from safety nets. Um, so it's had a yeah, it's had a significant impact on, on various areas of our work. Thanks, Liam. David, was there anything that you wanted to add on COVID from a kind of global international perspective? In the medium term, I think one of the biggest challenges is how to incorporate welcoming into the next phase of COVID-19, in my opinion, in many of our opinions, which is the recovery piece. Right now, we're not really in a place where recovery is totally on people's minds, more about dealing with the crisis, but there's going to be, in every country where we work, in all those cities, um, there's going to be economic recovery that needs to take place along with other types of health output outcomes, et cetera. And so, so yeah, we're, we're trying as a movement. We actually have some meetings between all of our members, uh, including Aline this week, where we're going to talk about that, among other things, about, you know, what is how can we play a role in making sure that these recoveries are as inclusive as possible? Um, how do we sort of think about our work differently so we're able to incorporate our framing into that framing? Um, because, yeah, th this is an opportunity to incorporate inclusion work, welcoming work into the broader thinking of cities, but it's also a, a, a dangerous period where uh, if, if communities just plow ahead, uh, there's going to be more inequality than there was before at the end of all of this. Um, and so figuring out how we can try to prevent that from happening and then at the same time actually make people think about inclusion more than ever and incorporate policies and approaches about inclusion more than ever is is it's essential to the future of the movement but also the future of humanity frankly thanks david it sounds like you've got an interesting set of conversations ahead of you <laughs> as a movement as as humanity but as a movement as well <laughs> You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So looking more at the innovation aspects of your work, one of the dimensions that we're looking at is how these approaches are disruptive. So firstly, of the system or the status quo, and then secondly, for individual organisations. Could I first get your thoughts on how welcoming cities and um, the wider internationalisation of this kind of approach really is a challenge to the system or the sector and the way things are currently working, please? I think that we are disruptors uh, that, are, that have not been disruptors on purpose, but, uh, but still, uh, how, how do you be a welcoming disruptor <laughs> is an interesting question. I would say within the history of Welcoming America and then Welcoming International and the Welcoming Movement, it's been a story of a series of disruptions that have developed over time. So one of the first uh, disruptions, I would say, that we, I would say, brought to the field in the United States, uh, this was 
back in 2006 was just this idea that advocates were advocating towards specific politicians on the national level, on the state, on the local level, and inclusion or integration practitioners were very focused on making sure that immigrants and refugees had English classes and job training. Maybe the first innovation was this idea that if a seed's being put into a garden or putting itself into a garden, if an immigrant or refugee is entering a new community, how do you make sure that the soil is fertile? How do you make sure that the general population sees the value of people coming in, especially in communities that are growing quickly, like Nashville, which was the first welcome initiative in 2006. So we really focused on, all right, how do we develop a methodology that really has empathy for the receiving community, but also engages them deeply and connects immigrants with longtime residents, uses communication strategies to tell people about the contributions and values that are shared within that community. Um, and so that was, you know, for me as an advocate, actually, a community organizer, uh, at the time I was running the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, that was, that was a disruption. We weren't doing touchy-feely stuff. We were doing advocacy and organizing, but this was actually trying to start a dialogue in communities that were changing. So that was an important disruption that started to spread around the U.S. Next was just a lot of advocates, including us, were very focused on the national level uh, as, a, as a lever of change on immigration. But what we were finding again and again was that Immigration on the national level is a very contentious issue. It's difficult to affect, and it's hard to find necessarily national advocates. Obviously, we have examples. New Zealand, for example, in our movement now is a, is a national government. Canada is part of the initiative. Germany is supported by a national government. But advocates, in our opinion, weren't looking at this idea that you could change an issue like inclusion and also immigration through a bottom-up approach and that loc localities and cities, not just on immigration, but on a number of issues were, were, the, were actually becoming the driving forces of change. So th this bottom-up approach where you can support cities and then continue to find more and demonstrate that there's benefit in doing this. We could go from you know, one city in the United States doing this work to 200 in just a couple of years because we saw a, a, you know, an opening in a bottom-up approach and we could affect the whole, the whole country over time. We're still not there yet in the United States, but we could slowly connect the whole, build a, a movement of welcoming that could change things from the bottom up. Third disruption was this idea, and Aliam's talked about this a lot, and Welcoming Australia is one of our, our favorite initiatives, most far advanced. So hearing their examples is always super inspiring. I would say that the next disruption is around collective impact. As an organizer, we tended to be focused on if we were going to make change at the city, we try to really push the city to do what we wanted. And at Turk, the Tennessee Coalition, Immigrant Refugee Rights Coalition, we had started on a campaign to try to get driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. And that was a campaign where we were, if we just get 51% of the legislature to support this, we're good. And we actually, in 2001, we were able to pass that legislation, but eventually it was repealed. We didn't have enough support of enough different stakeholders. And so the collective impact approach that we used in Atlanta and Nashville and Dayton in Ohio was a leader on was, okay, instead of being in opposition to the city, we're actually going to bring the city to the table. The city of Dayton actually led the welcoming initiative back uh, in 2010, 2011. But it was this idea that we can bring the city together with business community, the religious community, labor, immigrants, refugees themselves, and chart a path forward for welcoming because actually everybody wanted this. And if we did that, we weren't talking about 50% plus one, we were talking about 90% of the, of the community could eventually be brought on board, which made it a lot more difficult to get rid of once you got it set. set. And so Dayton is still going strong, for example, in the United States. And then finally, just this idea of standards. Again, I talked about the fact that the welcoming movement had a lot of passion in it and was operating in these different national silos or even city silos. Um, standards helped to unify the movement of the United States. I know it's helped in, uh, and Aline talked about that in Australia, but when you develop standards collectively together, a definition of success, um, you have one direction that everyone is headed, but it's also a lever for change. If you can demonstrate that Nashville actually can have more companies coming to it because welcoming and people want their employees to feel welcome and their families to feel welcome and uh, same goes for Dayton. Then, and then he certified Dayton. Dayton was our first certified city in, in the welcoming city in the world. Then, then other cities want to do that as well. And so you actually create this lever of change where other cities are almost in a really virtuous and friendly competition in a way. I mean, these are all brothers and sister organizations or cities in our movement, 
But if that organization's got a standard, got, got certified, and then now is seeing benefits from it, how do we leverage that so that every city in the world wants to be certified? And how do we support the development of standards so that we can really fuel a global movement with a, with a definition of success and a definition that is connected to prosperity for everybody? So I would say those are some of the disruptions and innovations that uh, we've uh, tried to collectively bring into the movement. Thanks, David. Alib, is there anything that you'd like to add just from an Australian context within that? Just quickly, just a couple of things, which I've kind of already touched on. One is that sense that in Australia, local government is often sort of left behind, excluded, undervalued in the space of migration settlement cultural diversity and inclusion and traditionally their role or the perception of their role has been limited to what we call the three R's roads rates and rubbish <laughs> and so positioning and supporting local government as facilitators and brokers in this space when immigration related services have traditionally been the exclusive domain of federal government and large NGOs has definitely been a disruptor and I would argue getting much better outcomes because it's increasingly more grassroots uh, as, as David highlighted. And then the other for us is, is something again that I mentioned earlier around issues of colonization and decolonization. You know, as a nation, we have an unreconciled past and it's a past that has continued into the present. And we're at a moment in history where there's an intersection of a global pandemic and black lives matter and Aboriginal lives matter and nobody left behind which is the campaign that we're running around supporting recently arrived migrants, refugees and people seeking asylum. And now is as good a time as any, I think, to genuinely look at our institutions and at our systems and to increasingly decolonise our organisations and our practices. So on the kind of self-disruption question, could you kind of both share how you're continuously learning and adapting with this work either as an individual organisation or as a family of organisations that are sharing practice and, and lessons with each other? The movement is definitely set up in a way where we can innovate and in, in essence disrupt work continuously. I think it, you could define that as a learning culture and I, I, I do think that our that Welcoming International and the, and the member organizations we are we, and, and the movement as a whole is a learning movement. So one example of this is the standard itself and I sometimes give the example of the fair trade standard versus the organic standard. So fair trade has a little bit more of a universal kind of a standard. There are variations, but th their goal is to change consumer behavior, which they've done very effectively. Our goal is to change community-wide behavior and perceptions, um, which is something very new around standards. So that's, again, part of our disruption of the broader movements and the social justice movement as a whole. But our standard is more like the organic movement, which has recognizes that each nation is very different and therefore you can't have one or just even a small number of standards. Every, at least nationality needs to have a unique standard. But because of that, because our standards, we have guidelines for all of the standards that we created together as a movement. But if you're able to have very different standards, each time a standard is created, it creates, it starts to disrupt the other standards because there's an innovation that Australia brings in, for example, to their standard that the US standard didn't have. And now the US, every two years they re uh, sort of revisit the standard, make changes. So we will clearly take what we like from the you know Australian standard, as Australia did from ours in the United States. I shouldn't say ours since I'm international, but um, as Australia did from Walking America and New Zealand took bits and pieces from Australia's Germany. You know the list goes on. But basically, we purposefully create a structure that disrupts itself in that way. And the standard is the DNA of our various movements. And so that's an important um, tool to disrupt ourselves. But we've been disrupting from the beginning. We, we started our work in the US as, as a culture change initiative um, that wasn't focused on policy, but really trying to change the climate. But we recognized over time that we, we needed to also not just create change in the culture and, and the culture of welcome, but we actually needed to put in institutions that would make sure those changes stuck. That was a big change at the time. And I think one that helped us to grow quite a bit more afterwards, but it wasn't always that way either. Again, it's a learning culture. It's a, it's a culture of, of constant questioning and, and growing. And then one in the future, one piece that we're looking at now is around the definition of welcoming itself and inclusion. 
Um, a lot of the initiatives with the U.S. as the first example have been primarily focused on inclusion of immigrants and refugees and everyone else uh, in communities, particularly marginalized groups. But the standard has been still focused primarily on immigrants and refugees. So basically, we're, we're now looking at disrupting that work to be more inclusive. And frankly, Australia, New Zealand, and Anchorage in, in the United States on First Nations have been doing this from the very beginning. Um, so we're in that way trying to catch up, the rest of the movement catch up to, to the work that Australia and New Zealand have been doing on that, but, but also thinking even broader, the growth and the resurgence of the racial justice movement and Black Lives Matter and everything around that growing movement just highlights the fact that inclusion is not just about immigrants and refugees. So how do we incorporate a broader lens uh, onto our work, onto our standards is something that's a, a disruption that will take time, but I believe will eventually happen within our movement. Thanks, David. I like the metaphor of this kind of master code that then evolves to include uh, beneficial local mutations. So talking about local mutations, Alim, is there anything that you want to add from the Australia perspective and how you've you've had to constantly learn and adapt and, and do things differently? Definitely. I mean, if, if we're going to ask other organisations to audit and improve their systems and processes, then as difficult as it is, we need to be willing to go on the journey ourselves. And so as we've looked internally and done that, we've been talking a lot about uh, symbol and substance. Uh, and so symbol, David mentioned actually uh, in the introduction that we changed our name. Uh, we were Welcome to Australia. We'd subtly changed our name from Welcome to Australia almost two years ago now to Welcoming Australia. And that wasn't just about aligning with the brand name of the broader international movement. It was actually more a recognition that symbolically and practically it's not our place as a non-Indigenous organisation to, in the first instance, welcome people to this country. It's the country we, we live on, unceded, stolen land. So we needed to own up to that and talk to that in our name. And so we're now welcoming Australia, which is more aspirational and certainly a nod to our, our role as settlers and being part of the receiving community. We positioned a First Nations keynote at the beginning of our national symposium. We, we were the first in the sector to do that. So symbol is something that we're continuing to look at. You know, it's important, it's front-facing, it, it sets an example and a model for others to follow. But what we're really grappling now with is substance and kind of what we're realising for ourselves, and this is a difficult self-realisation, is that some of the things that we think are substance are really just symbol. And, and it's why we've seen, uh, at least in our country, diversity and inclusion roles and portfolios were the first to go in, in, in the downturn. The sports sector, the community sector, smaller governments and, and NGOs, if you had diversity or inclusion in your title, you were probably made redundant. And so it's not embedded work. It's not embedded practice. And so we need to be honest about that and, and talk about that and look at how we can embed that more so that, that it's, it's not a nice title or a nice intent, but we're actually committed 100% to this work. Thanks, Liam. I think these are important reflections that uh, will resonate with a lot of people listening to this in their organisations as well. So looking at scalability, you've achieved huge success, I think, in terms of both the speed and scale of, of the international scalability and at a national level in Australia. But there are different models and experiences. Could you reflect on those a bit and what have been some of the key factors for success behind your both international and national scalability, please? I would say the most important lesson around this idea of, of scaling to me is, is, is actually humility. If there's one practice that's been the most important for us around scalability, it's, it's humility. And so that's recognizing, again, as we've emphasized, not coming into a new place and saying, you know, we've created this great thing. Can you like, can you replicate this widget in your country? Like we want to make widgets around the world. It's, it's instead part of that humility. Humility is again, recognizing we didn't invent this. We've all been doing welcoming here at the local level. And so how do we, how do we build on our strength together? How do we, we're so impressed with the work that you're doing. You want to join uh, this broader movement. And so, so yeah, this is not like a, a corporate scaling enterprise. This is a movement supporting exercise and built within that again is this idea of of humility we're not here to teach you anything uh, we're here together to figure out a path forward for this very important movement at this very important time in history 
Um, and that has been effective and it's made sure that our movement is, uh, the culture of the movement is a collective one, is a supportive one, and, and, and that's really been key to the growing. And, and I'd say, particularly given the fact that Welcoming International is based uh, within Welcoming America, that humility is more important than ever um, because, I mean, obviously sentiments right now towards the United States are not so great, and it's not particularly uh, seen as a welcoming country for very good reasons, but still the United States is part of the puzzle. Germany is part of the puzzle. Australia is part of the puzzle. And we can all support each other uh, and expand together. Another piece is around just finding people and institutions that are the right fit and not just saying yes to everybody that shows some interest in, in this work. Um, I mean, yes, we want to support welcomers everywhere, but as far as becoming part of the international network, which means, you know, getting a lot of support and time, we need to find places that share our values, organizations that share our values, um, that are really passionate about this, that have the capacity to, to see it through. I remember visiting Aleem and his colleagues out in Australia. So yeah, this was way over three years ago now, but we both, we all were like, you're one of us is I think what Aleem had said to me, but I also was feeling the same way when we were drinking a, a, a coffee or a, my first flat white, maybe. I hadn't heard of it before coming to, to Australia, but yeah, it was, it was a cultural fit. There was something we were, we were clearly in it for the right reasons um, and doing it in ways that were going to be the best for the country. And then last thing is just around this prototyping piece uh, or this uh, learning culture. In order to scale, we've, we've tried in, in Australia, we work with a nonprofit uh, as, as a key partner, Welcome Australia. In, in New Zealand, it's, it's a government, national government, like I said, also Canada. And then in Germany, it's with a foundation that's supported by the national government. In the UK, it's Oxford University, their Inclusive Cities program, which is part of Compass. So that's, we're prototyping in all sorts of different ways and saying, okay, can you, can you scale this by using, you know, by collaborating with this kind of an institution versus that kind of an institution. And throughout this process, not all of the uh, prototyping work. Uh, I remember early on in Welcoming America, I was really excited about this thing called Friends of Welcoming. And we, we set up a whole online tool to sort of gamify welcoming so that local people could win prizes if they welcomed. And I was very excited about it. We invested some money in it. It just didn't, just didn't catch on. And we can think of all the reasons why and be like, oh, just it was an idea that was ahead of its time or whatever. But whatever the case is, we have to be able to, you know, as a movement, we're going to scale be brave to try new approaches and new ideas and then be brave enough to recognize when you need to pull the plug if it's not working but all of our initiatives i'd say have been doing that kind of work and again it's about building a culture within your movement of that that ability to prototype that ability to to try ideas and allow them to fail those are some of the ways that we've been able to scale i would say Thanks, David. So, Aleem, from meeting David three years ago to now having more than 50 welcoming cities in Australia in such a short space of time, what are some of the lessons and, and factors that you see behind that? I mean, I would absolutely agree with David's reflections, especially on humility. And tied into that for us is, is how humility informs our commitment to partnership and relationship. Too much of this work in my opinion, and our observation really happens in silos and happens in isolation. And when we launched, and even ongoing, we, we were very open about what we were trying to achieve, but also kind of staying in our lane and not trying to duplicate existing work or, or to be all things to all people. And, and initially, we were viewed very suspiciously in the space and in the sector. You know, this can be quite a cluttered and competitive space, but we tried to be as open and transparent as we could possibly be and to communicate where we thought we fit, where we thought the gaps were and, and to try and bring as many people to the table who are already doing great work in this space or had a reputation for doing great work in this space. And so our model in Welcoming Cities is very much built around members and supporters. And so members, are local councils, supporters or anyone else. And we're kind of clear that as an initiative, we're not competing on service delivery. So, you know, often our members will say to us, oh, we need cultural inclusion training or we need help with uh, developing specific work around this policy or, or this project. We don't put up our hand to do that work. It's not our core business. It's not our strength. So what we do is we refer them. We refer them to other organisations. We refer them to our supporters for whom that is their core business and their strength and that they've been doing very well for a long period of time. So 
I think that's been really sort of critical to to our growth and success. And that's something that we're seeing actually as a recurring common theme across many of our case studies. It's where the organisations have really understood the whole ecosystem of all of the actors and what each one's doing and where their particular niche is in a way that unlocks wider changes within that system. So finally, taking a bit of a kind of step back and reflecting, what would be your lessons for other organisations working in complex urban settings? Just kind of picking up on that last thought and something that you've highlighted as well, Vicky, do your research, <laughs> do your planning, <laughs> be really clear about what that ecosystem and landscape is, be clear about your motivations and why you're doing this work and ensure that if you are going to engage in this work that you do it in a way that takes as many people as possible with you, but also kind of step back and do that work before you dive in there's kind of no shortage of great ideas there's no shortage of doing interesting and important work but what it's grounded in really needs to empower communities because often great ideas just translate to service delivery or delivery for communities rather than delivery kind of with and by communities and you know there can be a lot of agendas and a lot of egos and a lot of personalities that can sometimes get in the way of and really minimize what can be truly amazing and significant and positive and powerful change that happens, not just from the top down, but very much from the grassroots up. So that would, I think, be my key takeaway from this work. So what's next for both Welcoming International and Welcoming Australia in terms of ambition, focus? What can we look out for? For us, we're not content with 50 members and 30% of the population. We, we certainly would like to grow that in, in a meaningful and a sustainable manner. So we're absolutely focused on, on growing the network. We're focused on resource development, so developing resources that support the work in an open source manner. So we, we share all the resources that we develop. We're focused on, on growing the accreditation and ensuring that it's working both for our members, but that we can increasingly communicate what that looks like in terms of broader benchmarking. But we're also looking to sort of seed some of this work in other sectors and areas. I think I mentioned um, that we do some work around sports inclusion. So we have an initiative called Welcoming Sport that's working with codes, sporting codes and clubs, um, kind of picking up on some of the work that we did with welcoming cities and recognising that sport plays a very key role in social cohesion. And so supporting major sporting codes and clubs to help, a, again, a more planned approach to welcoming inclusion to ensure that their membership, their participants, the people on their sporting fields increasingly are representative of the communities that they're in and that they serve and don't just sort of stick to the traditional models. And also in the in the higher education space, so we're about to pilot an initiative um, in very early stages called Welcoming Universities, working with the higher education sector in Australia to, to look at um, uh, how they... Uh, make ensure that their institutions are welcoming and inclusive, but also at their internal practices to ensure that they're, I guess, living by the, the standards that they say that they seek to uphold. Thanks, Liam. And we'll make sure that we link to some of the resources that you've already got available. David, from an international perspective? Sure. So one of the areas, and a, and a lot of this parallels with the comments that Aleem said. So we also, as an international movement, are looking at growth. You know, there's so many welcomers out there. I, I want to reach all of them. We want to reach all of them. But but yeah, growth is is definitely still needed in this world and in this movement. But that means uh, growth both in depth and in breadth. So how do we help not just grow to another country, for example, find someone in another country, but also how do we support welcoming Australia to be everywhere in Australia? And so that depth and breadth are two important elements of growth and, and finding a balance between the two is always a challenge. But, but yeah, growth is, is, uh, is definitely on the horizon. But along that also is this piece around economic sustainability. And that's also important and a challenge. What's the business model for, I hate to use a business term for a movement, but how do you, how do you make sure that all of our members can sustain their work, whether it's through new types of work, uh, maybe welcoming universities in Australia might help subsidize some of the city's work, for example. We, we would love to see that be a model. But there's so many different ways that we're looking at how to make this work sustainable from a financial perspective. So that's that's in the horizon. 
And evaluation is also tied to that. The more we can demonstrate that change is happening, which we're doing around the world, our partners are doing, but how do we help do that even more? Because that, that's important for the enthusiasm of the movement, but it's also important for the sustainability of the movement. For the time being, this piece around, you know, COVID is part of everybody's future for a while, and it's still going to be an important part of our work moving forward. And not just, again, the pandemic, but all of the ramifications, economic and otherwise, and inclusive recovery. And how do you model that is definitely on the horizon for us, as is this really thinking about if we're talking about inclusive recovery being for everyone, how do we slowly broaden our work around what the definition of welcoming is from a, you know, a movement perspective. And working more in the global south is a, is a big priority. And this is an initiative that really started in the quote unquote, global north, but we're now working in Mexico. We see Latin America as a good place to start doing more and more work in the, in the global south. And we're learning a lot from the work that we've started to do in Mexico. Through Welcome America, we have a ton of ties in Mexico, so it's an easy place in a lot of ways to start that work, but not easy because there's so many challenges happening right now because of the pandemic that Mexico is facing. And frankly, the United States is facing too. But yeah, growth into the global south, not just in Latin America, but for now starting there and then and, uh, looking at other regions of the world as well is an important piece for us in the future. This whole kind of systems change, ecosystem work, how do we, the whole bigger than the sum of its parts, how do we operate with other actors in the international field that, that, are, that care about inclusion, that care about welcoming, particularly at the local level, we have an initiative we've been working on with Migration Policy Group, OECD, and Council of Europe uh, around, all right, there are some different indicators and standards around welcoming at the local level. How do we look at the sort of the, some of the key elements of all of those to, to spread this movement of, of inclusion at the local level more broadly? We're in conversations with folks within the refugee sponsorship movement, this movement of communities and, and, and families that want to take refugees into their homes and their communities. That's a very parallel, what I call a twin movement. I am a twin, so I think that's why I use that term. But how do we have that humble interaction with other movements to then each uh, spread and share each other? As far as the work itself, I just want to emphasize that this is not a static uh, movement. Uh, and, and so if you're in a place, uh, if you go to our website and you see that you're in a place like Australia that has uh, a welcoming initiative, please contact uh, Welcoming Australia and get, and get started. You can bring your city on board. You can support your city if it's already on board. But the same goes around the world. If you don't see a movement or an initiative in your country, contact us. We can help you start with your own city, with your own community, and then take it from there. And it doesn't need to be just a municipality. Any person from anywhere, any sector can, can help uh, start this. And often it is one person or five people that start what become uh, you know, national movements. So don't be shy about reaching out and don't be, um, be bold because we need boldness at this moment. We're looking for the uh, social entrepreneurs in every community around the world, because that's how these, these these things grow and spread. So yeah, go to welcomeinternational.org and you can learn more. Thanks, David. So an open invitation to join your continued scaling, learning and network and movement building. Um, and we'll make sure that we include all of the links and information in our podcast description. Thanks both so much for joining me today to talk about your work and your movement internationally. It's been great hearing about it and to introduce it to new audiences. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Definitely. Thanks so much. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun, but uh, also good reflection for, for ourselves, I would say. So thank you. Thanks, guys. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.